employers and employees, regardless of the industry that you're in, everybody wants flexibility. Does everybody want to work from home all the time? Absolutely not. That's in fact inflexibility. And and arguably, if, if we had wanted to as a society, we could have all started working from home 10 or 15 years ago. It's harder to actually do real, you know, real business and make real decisions and frankly, build real relationships with people when it's it's through a screen. You know, it's just, it's a different way uh, to, to do business. The thing about the future is you try to plan for it and it turns out that it changes. One of the big things that changed that I admit, I don't think we got right was the ability and frankly, the ubiquity of mobile working technology to change some of the assumptions. From ever-changing work from home policies to emptying urban cores, the past year has sparked plenty of debate in differing directions about the future of where and how we work. I mean, definitely gone are traveling all day for a single meeting, that's gone. Two cars might be gone. There's always going to be that desire for an HQ, for a main, a physical space that is that that main gathering space. It's the headquarters, it's, it's Mecca for your company. And so I don't see that concept going anywhere. Welcome to another edition of 2025, Tomorrow Today. I'm GeekWire co-founder, John Cook. And I'm Jordan Voss, senior VP with wealth management firm, Northern Trust. We've again assembled an expert panel to offer their insights into the future of where and how we work. Perhaps nothing better captured conflicting views about the future of work this past year than the sale of REI's brand new but never used campus in Bellevue, just across the lake from Seattle. The outdoor retailer spent years developing the futuristic 400,000 square foot complex spanning eight acres, only to put it up for sale amid the COVID crisis before ever moving in. But Facebook swooped in and snatched up the campus for nearly $368 million. REI's chief customer officer, Ben Steele, is part of the leadership team that decided to make such a dramatic pivot for its 1,200 headquarters employees. The thing about the future is you try to plan for it and it turns out that it changes. And, you know, we started our campus journey um, about five years ago, actually, right as I joined REI. And it was uh, one of the one of the things that early on we spent a lot of time talking about. And we were really trying to imagine what would a space that facilitated the way we want to work look like. Now, if you look at the last five years, a lot has changed and that precedes COVID. One of the big things that changed that I admit, I don't think we got right was the ability and frankly, the ubiquity of mobile working technology to change some of the assumptions. So we were really focused on designing a campus that was about collaboration, but we were very literal that collaboration meant in person, in the same room with a whiteboard. And while I think that there are certain types of work that do need that, they do need our, you know, us to stand around and look at a wall together and move stuff around and, you know, move stickies. And, and then there's spontaneous work that can happen as people kind of collide unexpectedly in space. Not all work needs that. And we we saw in an instant, as a lot of organizations did, that something we talked about needing to get better at, mobile working, we suddenly were doing as a total population in the course of a day or two. And while the conditions of COVID working from home are not the same as a mobile working future, we learned some stuff um, and saw some stuff and frankly were challenged to say, what assumptions of the past do we need to re-examine? And one of them was 
the degree to which a single space needed to contain all those capabilities. So where is the Office of the Future and what does it look like? Steele says for REI, the company vision has evolved from one centralized headquarters to more of a distributed model of satellite outposts across the area with far more flexibility for people to come and go. If I'm literal about creative work, yeah, there's a time that's about intense in-person debate and discussion. But then I also needed, you know, the proverbial room of one's own to go like, right. And so I needed both things. So a campus gave me one, but not the other. A coffee shop gives me one, but not the other. My basement gives me one, but not the other. If you really do map the job types, work streams, types of outputs you're looking for, flexibility becomes just as important as something like collaboration is. And I would say it's true for every business. It's maybe even more true for us as a co-op where so much of our model is about giving money to the outdoors. You know, 70 cents of every dollar goes to reinvest in the outdoors. We got to be smart about where we put our dollars. So the degree to which a campus was going to consolidate capital and limit flexibility in other spaces says, okay, if I map those jobs and I think about what we need and I think about the degree to which capital is centered in one place, is that the best choice for our total strategy? So yes, we have to give people a place to come together, but do we need that all the time and for everybody? We don't think the answer is yes. The future of where and how we work is under the microscope at virtually every company, big and small alike. Microsoft and Facebook are among the many companies that have announced permanent new hybrid workplace policies that will allow more employees to work from home, some or all of the time, once we're on the backside of the pandemic. We spoke with veteran Seattle tech leader Jim Brzezimitsis, who says he's already seen a lot of colleagues taking advantage of the opportunity to permanently relocate. Brzezimitsis heads the 5G Open Innovation Lab, a collaboration with T-Mobile, Intel, NASA, and many other organizations. At my time at Microsoft and PeopleSoft and Oracle and, and Nortel Network, I've been fortunate enough to build a fairly broad network of you know, friends and colleagues. And it's alarming to see at a certain metros, New York and San Francisco being two examples, where I've had a lot of my colleagues uh, do just that, lifted the family out of those areas and have moved to other parts of the state um, or even uh, out of state. And it's not a stretch to suggest that there is a big number of my colleagues who have done that because of new work at home policies where their employers have really enabled that. And for them, it just made practical sense, particularly in metro areas like San Francisco and New York City, where just the cost of living is it's not normal, right? It's astronomical when compared to the rest of the United States. And so for them, they, they've made that move. They've moved out of those big metro areas into more, you know, less dense areas and frankly, just better cost of living. And they're enjoying it and, and loving it. Many analysts predict far more workers will choose to make a move or make their office at home in the future if given the option. A new study by freelance job placement site Upwork estimates at least 14 million Americans will relocate to a different city or region thanks to flexible new work-from-home policies. It's a move Brizan Mitzis has considered himself. When COVID first hit, he decamped with his family to his cabin in the mountains 90 miles east of Seattle near Cleelum, Washington. With high-speed fiber internet access, he's been able to keep the lab humming along remotely. The real estate market in Cleelum is booming with workers making an exodus. And there are plenty of reports about dramatic increases in sales since the pandemic took root across the country. But Brismitsis tells us while his family considered permanently moving to the mountains, there are significant drawbacks for his work and his kids' schooling. And after lengthy conversations, they've determined they'll return to the Seattle area and a physical workspace as soon as the pandemic is over. 
platforms like Zoom and Teams have been fantastic for facilitating these types of introductions, but there's a human element that you lose uh, in, in a medium like this. And so that for me has been one of my, my personal bigger downsides in that it's harder to actually do real, you know, real business and make real decisions and frankly build real relationships with people when it's, it's through a screen. You know, it's just, it's a different way uh, to, to do business. Um, and in my almost 21 years of being in the enterprise world, uh, being highly personable, it, this has been a change. Uh, but that hasn't hold us back. We've continued to make progress in the lab. We've continued to do a great job recruiting great companies into our programs. Um, but we're at a point in our business where that, that really requires more you know, physical, actually being out in the field and, and working alongside other folks. But who will get to ultimately make the decision whether to work in an office or at home? For Seattle real estate developer Jordan Seelig, that's a critical question. Seelig's venerable family company owns and operates a sizable portfolio of office space across the Seattle area, with several innovative new buildings slated to come online in the next several years. Everybody wants flexibility. Employers and employees, regardless of the industry that you're in, everybody wants flexibility. Does everybody want to work from home all the time? Absolutely not. That's in fact inflexibility. And, and arguably, if, if we had wanted to as a society, we could have all started working from home 10 or 15 years ago. We had phones, we had cell phones, we had computers, we didn't have Zoom and we didn't have Skype and we didn't have Microsoft Teams. But intents and purposes, we could have theoretically started working from home a decade ago or more. And there's a reason why we didn't. Lots of companies experimented with it, having uh, their entire workforce work from home, um, and it didn't work out. And so I think the answer to your question of what, do the, what does the future look like, actually, that, that answer lies in the past and what happened um, when, uh, for example, IBM tried that experiment and AT&T tried that experiment. Yeah, now, me too. I think, so uh, I think also that things have changed quite drastically over the course of the past nine months. It's, it's one thing to choose to work from home, and it is something very different to be forced to work from home. So again, going back to the topic of flexibility, I think everybody wants the option to work from home. The question is, how often am I working from home? What is it like when I go to the office? Is that office culture still there? And what are my home circumstances like? There are lots of different reasons why people might not want to work from home, ranging from pets to small children to a small apartment. Let's say I am, um, am a single person who lives in a studio. I may not enjoy working from home all of the time. It gets a little bit lonely. Um, I, for example, have a small child at home. It's not always easy to find a quiet space to work. I also have lots of uh, single friends who live in small studio apartments. It gets a little claustrophobic to work out of a studio by oneself over, over the weeks and over the months. And again, I think it comes back to, am I being forced to work from home or am I choosing to work from home? So would I like to work from, for a company that said, we're giving up all of our office space and from now on you have to work from home and you never see your, your, your colleagues from here on out? No, I, that to me, honestly, it sounds like a nightmare. Seelig is one of several leaders we spoke with for this episode who underscored the challenge of preserving office culture and community regardless of where and how we end up working in the future. RAI's Ben Steele says culture and community are key considerations. 
I think you're calling out a really serious concern that we've talked about having to design around. And I would say in a hybridized environment, equitable access is something we have to be really serious about. Um, and it's hard. There are folks who in a mobile environment are just less visible. There's people who could grab you in a lunchroom and have a conversation or you'd see in a meeting and get a sense of how they were participating, even if they didn't have, you know, a full on-screen lit up box around them role. And I think today that's one thing that isn't working as well with mobile working technologies. There's, there's, there's what's visible, you know, there's the iceberg above the water and then there's everybody else. And I think we're trying to think about both in our environments and in our technologies, how do you provide for equitable access and participation in a way that lets people build their network, their relationships, lets them get those at-bats to progress and to develop. And I, on, I'm going to be honest, that's a work in progress because I think we, we recognize that's not as good in today's state as it was in, a, in an office environment. Again, I'm hopeful that when people can be together physically again, some of that will be improved. But we're going to have to design around that and make sure that we're orienting to little stuff. Like if, if some people are going to be at home and some people are going to be in an office, the environment has to allow both of them to participate with relative equity. If it doesn't, then there's a giant social pressure that says, actually, the place you need to be is in the office. But we're going to tell you that it's OK for you to be uh, mobile. So we've got to solve for those things. We won't get it perfect uh, or we won't do it perfectly, I should say. But but we need to talk about it, because if we don't, what happens is there's there's suddenly a narrowing of paths to move forward. And that's not a better work environment for anybody. Companies aren't just looking at where we work, but how we'll work in the future. That's top of mind for Dan Giuliani, the co-founder and CEO of Seattle-based Volt Athletics. The fitness and sports training company made headlines earlier this year when it was among the first at the start of the pandemic to announce it would stay remote long term. And then the company upped the ante by blowing up the traditional five-day work week. Volt moved to a compressed four-day work week instead, making Friday a flex day his employees can use however they want. You know, the way that we think about it, the... Uh, increase in flexible time for our employees, assuming we're making good hires and we have talented people on our team, which we believe we do, uh, in theory should actually improve innovation and maybe offset some of the challenges that, that stem from not being around each other in a physical uh, office location on a day-to-day -day basis. That certainly is, at least from our experience so far, you know, one of the big downsides of the fully remote experience. It's just impossible to date for us to have replicated what we that energy and that um that ideation that that stems from being together um, but you know there there are some interesting opportunities here because giving people more time to themselves to work on projects that are either professional or personally enriching actually you know to, to us might upgrade their ability to uh to be collaborative to be creative to be um, to be thinking a little bit differently than just kind of working through the day-to-day -day grind uh, that we're used to. So the genesis of how we got to our, our four-day work week and our Flex Fridays policy really came from a combination of um, re rethinking the work week based on the pandemic that we're all dealing with, right? I mean, the world has fundamentally changed. And so we felt like maybe there was a better way to, to, to approach our, our world. Um, you know, Google, in, I'm sure in many ways has been ahead of us and ahead of a lot of a, a lot of the world in thinking through this kind of stuff. And I think we're still catching up a little bit on, on thinking about, well, what does it really mean for people to have more time to themselves to be able to work on things that help um, upgrade their own capabilities? 
you know, because we, so if you think about it, you know, we, we make our, our hires of our staff, we, we train them, we, we, we give them a structure to work within. But really, as managers of a, of a startup, I mean, our, our best um, opportunity, I think, to, to accelerate and be ultimately successful is to give our employees opportunities to work within those structures to, um, to bring new ideas and to innovate and to help uh, take the company forward. Um, and I think the more that we feel comfortable trusting our employees, the more that we feel comfortable giving them the tools and the flexibility to be able to work in the ways that give that work for them, um, the better off we'll we'll be. Uh, but I do think that you know there's there's always a balance, right? So uh, I don't think Google would have found it to be particularly successful to give a hundred percent of the time back to their employees, right? So they they gave 20% back. We're, we're also kind of giving 20% back, which is in this case is a bit coincidental. Um, but we're thinking about that. We're thinking about where the balance point is of structured work, you know, where the expectation is we're together synchronously operating um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's our Monday through Thursday world. And then Fridays, we've just given back to our employees entirely. Uh, so we've told them they can do literally anything they want with that time. There's no expectation of work, uh, but there is an expectation of performing your your job. Um, and if your job requires you to, to work more than four days a week, then you probably should do that or you won't be contributing enough to the, uh, to, to offset the, um, the compensation. So, you know, there's, there's some just really interesting opportunities here because every role is different and every person is different. And so giving them a little bit more time, a little bit more flexibility, uh, which is really, you know, a, an extension of the remote work life, I think. It, it makes less and less sense to to keep everybody on a very strict, you know, day-to-day, -day, um, you know, synchronous experience when we're all separated. Uh, it just lets people, more flexibility lets people work in, in a way that, that works better for them. Giuliani tells us Volt Athletics has given up its lease and gone all in on remote work for the foreseeable future. But it's clear there'll be plenty of demand for offices in the years to come. Microsoft continues to build out its massive campus east of Seattle, and Facebook and Google are doubling down with their own expansions across the Seattle area. Developer Jordan Selig is one of many executives who predict a strong return for offices and urban centers once the pandemic subsides. I think that there's there's a little bit of a trend toward a suburban office, but I think that there's always going to be that desire for an HQ, for a main a physical space that is that, that main gathering space. It's the headquarters. It's, it's Mecca for your company. Mark my words, it will come back with a vengeance because we as human beings, it's a biological need that we have for community. And you can only create community on the internet to a certain extent. And so do I see urban density increasing? Absolutely. Do I see people wanting to live close to where they work? Absolutely. I just, it's, it's simply a matter of time. In fact, I think it's simply a matter of months before we see, uh, before we see the downtown cores of the United States come back to life. Community is one way of improving your mental well-being. It's, there have been so many studies done on the need for, for human beings to have community um, around them. It, it literally improves your physical health. But what will those offices look like? My honest answer to that question is that what really makes me excited about the future of office is that I think as we develop 
the the technologies for building buildings and designing buildings, the experience of being in an office is going to become more and more like the experience of being in nature, actually. And that may not be the question that the answer that you were expecting, but that's what really gets me excited is the idea that in the future, we will be able to, and, and in the present, 400 Westlake is a really good example of that. Um, 400 Westlake is one of the buildings that we are now constructing in South Lake Union that will be a living building. It will produce more energy than it consumes. And also we will be collecting rainwater on the roof and recycling water within the building and high ventilation rates, lots of natural light. You know what really excites me about kind of the next generation of office design and office development is that the experience of being in your office is going to be so much better. It's going to be more kind of like the environment that we as human beings are meant to spend our time in. And and a lot of people, they make the mistake of breaking down green building to water savings and energy savings. And those are very important. That's, you know, the whole lead scheme is designed around water and energy. But it's also about materials, and it's also about those factors that are more qualitative and less quantitative. So again, it's the, it's the fresh air, and it's the natural light, and it's also how is the design of the building conducive to somebody taking the stairs versus taking the elevator? So another trend that COVID has amplified is this trend toward health, health in the workspace both mental health and physical health. Do I see it becoming more and more important to have fresh air in the workspace? Absolutely. And natural light in the workspace? Absolutely. I think the, you know, we can all laugh about the free tacos and the free beer. I laugh about those things, but I think the point of those little perks was to make people happy at work, right? It it was to improve mental well-being in the workplace. It's a silly way of achieving that goal, but the goal but the goal is a noble goal. And so as an employer, I think you always have to be looking for ways to um, make your employees uh, happy in in the space where they are probably going to be spending, I don't know, at least eight hours a day. And a big thing we've heard repeatedly in all of our conversations, Zoom or Teams just doesn't cut it when it comes to true collaboration and community. Volt Athletics' Dan Giuliani sums it up well. I, I can start by just you know pulling it back to 2020 and saying one of the things we're, we're really hoping happens somewhat soon. I think there are some companies working on this. I think maybe Microsoft Teams is a little further ahead maybe than Slack is. I, I'm not sure. But what we found is that there are some advantages to the, uh, the, the, the video conferencing style of hanging out right? Like everybody has a square and there's this kind of egalitarian feel to the whole thing, which is, it's just kind of nice, right? But one of the really big drawbacks is that only one person can talk at once. You can't have side conversations. You can't, you know, think about natural like breakout rooms, right? Which is, which are all these virtual conferences, which can be useful to, to split people off. But in real life, when you're hanging out in a room, right? We have 25 people we used to all come into one room at Volt HQ and we would hang out and we would drink beer or in my, my case, usually uh, White Claw because that became sort of a, a joke at our office. And, and, and then we would, the conversation would just flow and it wasn't like, oh, Dan's talking now so all 24 other people are gonna listen. But that's what happens when you're virtual. You can't co 
chat, right? You can't do it at the same time. So what we really want to have happen is some technology innovation around helping people in virtual settings. And this could be VR or not. I'm not quite sure how it would work. But figure out how to get closer to certain conversations and further away from others as if they're in a real room. Because we might start off talking, somebody's telling a story about whatever, and then a few people kind of get bored, and then they start their own little side conversation because that's just how it works. And then some people think, oh, that sounds interesting, and they kind of gravitate over there, and they join that little little pod, and they chat about that. But you can still kind of hear what's going on over, over on the other side of the room, and there's this vibrancy and this fluidity to the, to the conversation that is totally missing from the current um, you know, virtual hangout experience. And that's what I like when I think about where it's, and this is, I don't think we have to wait five years for this sort of thing to happen, but I really want to figure out how I can feel like I'm in a room, you know, help me feel like I'm there and I can participate where I want to participate. I can kind of feel the vibrancy of the conversation, but I'm not kind of just stuck on a square listening to one person waiting for them to finish or raising my hand. Those are just some of the fascinating insights we heard from our guests on the future of work. Jordan, what are some of your thoughts? This is one of those things I can really see going either way. I mean, on, on one hand, my sense is that if people are more or less remote for most of 2021, and that's kind of looking likely to me, I think psychologically it changes from just getting through the year to being more or less a uh, sense of permanence and some inertia. Plus remote, remote has tons of benefits for on the worker side for the employees, location choice and commute and flexibility. Um, so I think as it's proven out, the talent will really be pushing hard for it. But on the other hand, I feel like the best output will come from co-located teams. So even if they're just five or 10% more iterative or innovative, those will be the winners. And so I think there'll be tremendous pressure to avoid being flanked by more productive in-person rivals. So I think that we're kind of going to probably end up with some type of a hybrid, you know, enhanced optionality setting where well-developed routines around how that looks develop, but, you know, primarily commuting to an office for ambitious companies and people. I agree with that. I think the hybrid approach is probably going to be more of what we see, which is going to cause an impact on office space. I don't think organizations are going to need as much space as they've had in the past. And I think where companies choose to put that space is going to be different. And I think you do see this with the REI model where they are going to benefit employees by putting these satellite offices in different parts of their headquarters region rather than just one massive headquarters space that people have to travel to from all around the region. So I think that's going to be an interesting model that evolves out of this. I think you're right. And I think the nexus of of that to me is the fact that it is in person. So I just don't see the current remote environment persisting for longer than it has to. I'm not sure if you've seen the surveys on mental health and it's staggering. I mean, it's alarming stuff and burnout indicators are really bad. Communication's hard and there's loneliness and there's distractions and time zone problems and Wi-Fi and the home itself can be a challenge. Uh, I just think that we're going to have to be to, to reconvene to get creativity, company loyalty, uh, ideation, and those things back. I, th- I do see a need for people to gather uh, physically and be in an office to get certain tasks done. But I also see 
additional efficiency that can be achieved by people working where and when they want. I mean, definitely gone are traveling all day for a single meeting. That's gone. Two cars might be gone. Yeah, well, I think Bill Gates even had some recent stats where he was talking about business travel and what a hit that's going to take and and the bar it's going to take now for you to get approval within your company to do a business meeting. That bar is going to go way up. Yeah, the meeting piece for sure to me is changing. A lot of the meetings, as you look at the past year, you realize a lot of those in-person meetings weren't, you know, weren't necessary uh, to have a kind of a full day of travel on each side of. And well, yeah, I even think about it in Seattle, you know, in our hometown, like, gosh, it's a pain in the butt to travel from one of the outskirt neighborhoods to downtown to meet with somebody for a 45 minute interview or discussion. You're burning three hours uh, to do that. And I think this might be one of the efficiencies that comes out of it is like, let's do a 15 or 30 minute catch up on Zoom. And then if you want to be social with the person, then you go and you go grab a drink or see a movie with them or do whatever. Uh, And there's going to be, I think, a dividing line between when people just want to get their work done and the social aspect of what they want to do. Totally. I mean, that's one huge advantage. And then, you know, we had a huge housing problem in urban areas. Um, Every thriving city seemed like it was grappling with that issue as one of, if not their highest priorities. And this can really fix a part of that problem. I mean, it doesn't solve it completely and it's multidimensional. But if it does alleviate some of the strain and allow companies to be in a big city for what they need to be there for, but still allow some of their workers to kind of expand out of that urban core area. It can seems to me like it can really help. And I think it could push jobs as well and to in, not only alleviate the housing component, which is real in many of these urban centers, especially these tech hubs that have grown immensely in the last five or 10 years. But if some of those jobs, which are largely high paying, get distributed out into communities that are three, four, five hours outside of those urban cores, many of which have been left behind, there is a hope that that will actually benefit those communities in a new way by injecting new ideas, brain power, money. I I think it's a little early to see if that trend takes root in a big way, but everything's kind of up in the air and everything's in flux right now. And as Jordan Selig said, it really does kind of come down to a bit of a power struggle between companies and talent and who has that. And maybe not so much a power struggle because some companies are just buying in 100% to the idea that remote is the way to go. Uh, Others are not going to take that approach. And so that's going to be an interesting thing to watch play out with those companies that are taking maybe the hybrid approach or going full remote and whether they can start to attract more talent than those that have a real strong centralized headquarters concept. And at that point, if Amazon or Microsoft or Facebook that is more decentralized, let's say, can hire better people and they start winning more engineers that build better products for them, then I think that's going to be the one that wins out. Yeah, there's no question it's going to be super competitive increasingly for talent. I you know, I have I have no doubt about that. Some cities and and regions are are better positioned to kind of capture some to your, I mean, exactly to your point where here in Seattle, we have such a big tailwind with 
huge employers already entrenched here for their headquarters, whether, whatever that looks like, you know, whether that is kind of a hybrid model, the, the node and spoke model that they talked about, it's still the, the main, you know, the, the, the main aggregate of employees is here already. And so we're really lucky that they're not making the decision to uh, put a headquarters somewhere now. You know, because it would be a lot different and they're already here. But to, to, to the other point well, that you made. Well, to that point, you even see that with Amazon when they are, I mean, they went through the whole HQ2 process, but they are largely keeping their staff in the region. Yep. In fact, we had just reported this week for the first time, we noticed that Amazon referred to themselves as a Puget Sound company, not as a Seattle company. But given how normalized it is to have a big portion of the workplace, especially in, in knowledge work, uh, being distributed and remote, those decisions for, an, you know, the, the main heavyweight campus look a lot different now than they did five, even five years ago or when HQ2 was being kicked around. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I think the words you use there are super important for this con- conversation when you mention knowledge work, because we should say remote work is only possible for a probably a very small percentage of the workforce when you think about it. When you think about work for, from home, I mean, there are jobs that we all know you cannot do working from home. So we're, when we talk about this trend towards remote work, we are kind of talking about a sub-segment of the larger economy. And I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, it's an extremely fast-growing, important part, especially in a place like Seattle, where Amazon and Microsoft are two of the largest employers in the state by far. Yeah, I mean it's it's a really small segment of the of the overall workforce. It's something like less than twenty percent of jobs are even able to be done uh, remotely. And all the studies that that I've seen, and I've done quite a bit of research on this, which we can link to, say that even in the wildest wildest extrapolations of current trends, you know, no more than one third of all jobs, even theoretically, can be virtual. Well, Jordan, always good to catch up, get your insights. Thanks for sharing them. Also, a big thanks to all of our guests for joining us on this show. We're going to be closely watching what happens with the future of work here in the coming years for sure. But for now, that'll do it for this edition of 2025 Tomorrow Today. I'm John Cook, co-founder of GeekWire. And I'm Jordan Voss with Northern Trust. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and check out our past episodes. Thanks for listening and take care. 2025 Tomorrow Today is produced and edited by Josh Kearns and Cypress Point Podcasting for GeekWire Studios. It's intended for informational purposes only and is not to be taken as investment advice. There may be some overlap between businesses mentioned and the holdings of Northern Trust clients, our hosts, and panelists.